Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, beginning at verse 13. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all of these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing this, Jesus himself approached and began to walk along with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He said to them, What are you talking about as you walk along? Saddened, they stopped. One of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked them. They replied, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. Not only that, but besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Also, some women of our group amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb. They found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. He said to them, How foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and to enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village where they were going, he acted as if he were going to travel farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, since it is almost evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he reclined at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and began giving it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Then he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us along the road and while he was explaining the scriptures to us? They got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those who were with them assembled together. They were saying, The Lord really has been raised. He has appeared to Simon. They themselves described what had happened along the road and how they recognized him when he broke the bread. This is the gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, our risen Savior. Set in the mid-19th century, Charles Dickens' novel, Great Expectations, tells the story of a boy named Pip. Pip goes from hopelessness, he's an orphan, who is then taken in by, by a blacksmith's family, and he, so he goes from from sheer hopelessness and despair to, to having hope for a while as he, he enters the family and he's, he's blessed with some positive uh, things that happen in his life, but then those hopes are once again dashed. Most commentators, most critics think that Charles Dickens was using this character of Pip as kind of a commentary on what it was like to live in England during the mid-19th century. Expectations were high at that time in England. It was becoming a world superpower and very wealthy. 
industrialization meant that more and more products could be produced more efficiently and for a cheaper price. Medicines and, and other inventions made life in England at that time uh, safer and healthier than it had ever been before. There were great expectations. But the, the point that Dickens makes in this book, Great Expectations, is that not everyone was experiencing exactly what they had been promised. Many saw the advancements that were taking place in, in England's English society, but they weren't realizing it themselves. I think that kind of a novel, that story could probably be told about just about any nation at any time in history, couldn't it? I mean, even right now, in 2023 in America, do you think the story could be told from the perspective of, of millions of people in our nation that, that while we can, we can send rockets into space and we have satellites and we have all this medical and technological advancement, maybe some of us aren't exactly experiencing that American dream. Maybe we have great expectations and those expectations are not being met as Americans. I'm not going to make any promises about meeting your expectations as Americans, but we're not here for that. We're here to talk about our expectations as Christians. Easter is all of 14 days ago. It feels like more than that, doesn't it? For various different reasons, I suppose, in each one of our lives. But have we forgotten the great hopes and the great expectations that Easter has provided for us? Easter is the proof that Jesus' death on the cross did pay for our sins, that God is not angry with us anymore, that He is our loving Father, that heaven has now been opened to us. If that is true, then why do we spend so many of our days gloomy and hopeless and despairing? Why do we live as though the empty tomb has had zero impact on our hearts and our lives? You're not alone. These two disciples on the road to Emmaus were very much in that position, hopeless and despairing. They had great expectations, but they weren't realizing them. And so on this road to Emmaus today, our Lord Jesus first diagnoses the problem and then he provides the solution to the problem. We have to set the timing for this. If you were in church last week, you heard actually a story that occurred after this one. So we have to go back in time, back to Easter Sunday afternoon or evening. It had been a whirlwind, roller coaster type of week for the disciples, right? And we, we lived it again with them this Holy Week, didn't we? On Palm Sunday, Jesus walks into Jerusalem or is carried in on a colt. It's a great fanfare. He's being celebrated as the king he truly is. We see him on Monday and Tuesday of Holy Week, and he's teaching in the courts. He's cleaning them out of all the, the, the trading that was going on there that shouldn't, shouldn't have been happening in the house of God. We do not hear about anything on Wednesday of Holy Week. It's known as Silent Wednesday because Scripture doesn't tell us what Jesus was doing that day. Then we have Monday, Thursday, where Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his disciples, and he institutes a new meal, the Lord's Supper, a meal that will be carried on for Christians in the church until he returns and we feast with him in heaven forever. Things 
had to be looking pretty optimistic for the disciples, right? And then in the course of just a few short hours, Jesus is betrayed, arrested, beaten, sentenced to death, dragged out to Calvary, hung on a cross, died, and buried. And you would think, well, but this is after Easter morning. Wouldn't the disciples now realize that Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to do, that he had to die and and that three days later he would rise again? But but Easter morning just seemed to complicate matters for the disciples. So the, the women went early to the tomb. They were still thinking that Jesus' body would be there. So they were going to finish the, the burial preparations. But what did they find? An angel who said that Jesus is not here. He has risen. So the women go back and report that to the disciples. And Peter sprints to the tomb. And what does he find? Well, he doesn't find anything but some folded up burial cloths. And so there was still this confusion they, they didn't understand and they didn't believe that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. Even though the tomb was empty, even though the angel said so, even though Jesus had said many times beforehand, I will rise three days later, they still did not believe. And that's why these disciples are walking to Emmaus sad, disheartened, and hopeless. Now, if you were teaching or, or telling this story to someone who had never heard it before, one of your friends who had never heard this story before, what do you think, what detail would you focus on? I know there are lots of details. It's a, it's a pretty long text. What would you focus on? I'll, I'll break it to you. I'll give you the hint that the most important detail is one that you might overlook. It's the fact that while they were walking back to Emmaus, Jesus was walking along with them. I know that's an easy fact to overlook, an easy detail to overlook, because we're, we're curious people. And we can be distracted by other details, like, well, why couldn't they recognize him? You know, if they were Jesus' disciples, don't you think they would have recognized him as he's walking along with them? Maybe his face, or his voice, or his mannerisms, or something, but they didn't recognize him. Why not? Kind of a futile question. We don't know why they didn't recognize him. They were somehow prevented from recognizing him. In any case, it doesn't really matter, does it? What does matter is another question, though. Why did Jesus do this to them? He could obviously see how sad and disheartened and hopeless they were, right? He knew what was going on in their hearts, that they... They thought they had lost their Savior. They thought they had no hope of salvation and the forgiveness of sins. He could see that, and yet he hid himself from them. Isn't that cold and cruel and heartless? If you as a parent see your child struggling, see your child in danger or in pain, would you withhold the help that you are able to give to them? And yet it seems like that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's withholding hope, withholding joy, withholding peace that he could have given them right then and there. He could have walked up to them and said, Hey guys, ta-da, I'm alive. But instead he kind of, I don't know what you would call it, is it torture? Does he torture them by just walking along with them? He's he's certainly not, at least to our minds, being very nice to them. 
Now, why would we ask a question like that? Why would that pop into my mind? Why would it pop into your mind that Jesus is being cruel and heartless? Because if we know anything about Jesus as the Son of God, he can not do anything that isn't totally loving, right? How, how is this loving? And why do we ask those questions? I think it's because it's easy for us to see ourselves in this story, isn't it? We can put ourselves in the, in the shoes or the sandals of those disciples walking to Emmaus who are so saddened and disheartened and hopeless. We know what it's like when we have expectations for how Jesus should be operating in our lives and in our world. And when we don't realize that, when it doesn't seem like Jesus is meeting our expectations, isn't it easy to feel just like they did? Saddened and hopeless and disheartened and thinking, man, I really had high hopes, but it doesn't seem like Jesus is answering my prayers. It doesn't seem like he's really active in our world. We see how terrible everything is getting. It doesn't seem like he's active in my family. So many of my family members have drifted away from the faith. And all of it is really starting to impact me and my heart and my faith. Maybe, maybe this really is what all of the atheists and the agnostics and the pagans out there say. Maybe it is just a, a fairy tale. And so we know what it's like to, to mope, to be saddened and disheartened like those disciples when Jesus doesn't meet our great expectations. Here's another question for you. Have you ever thanked Jesus for not meeting your expectations? For not doing what you want or expect when and how you want it? You should. We all should. You really should thank Jesus for not living up to our fallen, human, limited expectations. Because all you have to do is look at all the other religions of the world and you see what mankind expects from God. Look at any other religion in the world. Where does mankind expect God to dwell? Uh, somewhere else, right? Whether it's heaven, whether it's far away, you look at every other religion of the world, God is an alien, scary, foreign deity. Jesus was a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem. He is God with us. Who would have expected that? Human religions expect that God will show his favor to the rich and the powerful, to good people, those who are at least trying their best to be good people. And you know who Jesus spent his ministry with? prostitutes and tax collectors and generally the scum of the earth, which means that Jesus will spend his time with you and with me. Humans expect that when someone dies, they stay dead. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again to life, which is what this whole Easter season is about. Those disciples, what did they say? What were their expectations? We were hoping that he was going to be the one who would redeem Israel. Now, what, what, what did that mean? What were they hoping? What kind of redemption were they hoping for? Well, for the most part, the disciples were hoping that Jesus would restore Israel 
to its former status as God's chosen people, to restore them to a you know, kind of a superpower on the world stage. They were hoping to see it. And I, I think that can come to, sometimes seep into our faith, our hearts too. This idea that if Jesus really is powerful, if he really is risen, he should be more active in our world. Why isn't he getting rid of all the immorality that we see in our world? Why isn't he doing more to make this world a better place? Why isn't he doing more to protect and grow the church? Why isn't he doing more to restore this nation to its Christian roots, which, I hate to break it to you, our, our country has never been based on Christianity. This has never been a Christian nation. Christians have lived in it, but it's not a Christian nation, never has been. But those are great expectations we might have, right, of Jesus. But we should thank him for not doing that because if Jesus lived up to our expectations, my expectations, and yours, I'm pretty sure he never would have gone to that cross. He never would have bled and died to pay for our sins. He never then would have risen from the dead. He never would have showed himself to 500 or more people to prove it. And heaven would still be locked to us. So we should thank Jesus for not living up to our expectations because our expectations would just leave us sad and disheartened like those disciples on the road to Emmaus. So that's the first lesson that we learned, that, that our expectations just leave us sad and that, and that Jesus goes above and beyond anything we would ever expect and that we find that in Scripture. We find how... The promises of Scripture are better than anything we could ever expect, anything we could ever dream of, anything we could ever hope for. Because remember, what's the most important detail of this lesson? Jesus was with them and walking along with them. And he noticed, obviously, how sad and disheartened they were. And so how did he address it? How did he fix it? You know, it, in a way that we probably would think is, is unusual. You know, if I'm trying to comfort someone, if I'm trying to give them hope and peace and joy, what's the first thing you would do? Maybe give them a hug? Maybe say, I, I'm here for you? What does Jesus do? He breaks out the law. He rebukes them. How foolish you are and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and to enter his glory? Then beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. You see, Jesus put his finger right on the problem. The problem was not with Jesus. The problem was not that Jesus didn't live up to their expectations. The problem was with them. Again, I can't say for sure, because the Bible doesn't spell it out for us, what exactly these disciples were hoping, what they, what they anticipated Jesus' redemption of Israel would look like. Would it be freedom from the Romans? Would it be a return to economic prosperity? We don't know, and it doesn't matter. But what they did expect was that they would see it. Do you see the problem with that? If we expect Jesus to act in our lives and in our world in a manner that we can see, we will always be disappointed because that is not what faith is. We all know Hebrews 11 verse 1, right? Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. 
Faith is not based, saving faith is not based in what we see happening in our lives or our bank accounts or our uh, medical reports or in the daily news. Faith is based upon what the promises that God has made in Scripture. It's been 14 days since Easter. Have you found yourself losing hope, despairing, saddened, disheartened like these disciples? Why would that be? Is it because it is really just a fairy tale? It is really just a myth? Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. We're just fooling ourselves? No. Over 500 people saw him alive. Jesus is risen. He is risen indeed. That is the foundation of our faith. That's not the reason that we are sad and disheartened and moping about through life. Is it because there's some personal issue happening? Is it because we have relationship issues either at work or in our family? Is it because our finances are suffering as we contemplate rising inflation and the risk of an impending recession? Is it because we do actually mourn when we see the, the, the news reports about what's happening in Ukraine and Sudan and, and even on our own southern border? And it's not that we, that we are gloating or, or, or anything like that, but we feel for the human suffering that there is in our world. Is, is that why we're sad? Is it for some other personal reason, something else, that your life has taken a turn that you never expected? And, and many of those reasons could be true, but what about this reason? How foolish you are and slow of heart to believe everything that was written in the prophets about Jesus. Maybe the reason that we are not always hopeful and joyful and at peace is because we have forgotten or maybe never opened up our Bible to see the great promises that God has made to us through Jesus. You see, if you don't know, if you haven't opened up your Bible, if you don't know the promises that God has made to you, you'll never be able to believe them. And you'll never be able to have the hope and the comfort and the joy that God wants you to have through them. When we look around at our world and we look around at our own lives, there's not much reason for hope, is there? Easter was 14 days ago. We're 14 days older than we were, probably with new aches and pains. We're probably a little less wealthy than we were a few weeks ago due to rising inflation. Our dollar doesn't go quite as far as it used to. There's not much hope there, but there is hope that surpasses all of your expectations. Whatever you could possibly dream of, promises that God makes in Scripture are better than that. And I know that that sounds like an outrageous claim. Like, we're going to have to, it's a good thing this guy's leaving because he's making outrageous claims that we don't need to hear anymore. But I can prove it. And I think I can test it with, with some examples from Scripture. So let's say what's bringing you down is that you're suffering from chronic pain. Or there's a disease that, that you have that you just can't get rid of. There doesn't seem to be a cure for it, and you, you wonder where Jesus is. Why, isn't he, why is he not answering your prayers to take this away from you? 
And, and I would say, well, it's no wonder you're sad because Jesus has never promised to do anything like that. He has never promised that he will take all of the results of the curse of the fall into sin away from us. But, but he did say this to Paul. When the Apostle Paul complained to God about, about the thorn in his flesh, and we don't know if that was necessarily a physical ailment, but it was something that caused him pain. And the Lord responded to Paul. He said, My grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in weakness. So if a physical ailment or some other pain, whether it be psychological or spiritual, if that forces you deeper into the Word, if it forces you down on your knees in prayer to God, that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Or maybe you were here 14 days ago on Easter. And you looked around at the 110 people who were in attendance. And then you came back last week and maybe you looked around this morning and you see a lot of those people are not here. Where are they? I was hoping, I was expecting that Jesus would, would sow the seed of that Easter gospel into their hearts and our, our church would grow by leaps and bounds. Where are they? Or maybe, related to that, maybe you were a responsible Christian parent, you had your children baptized, you brought them faithfully to Sunday school, you had them confirmed, you made sure they learned their memory work, and now they've drifted away. And now they could really care less about hearing God's word and receiving the sacrament. And you're thinking, where did I go wrong? Why isn't Jesus living up to my expectations of keeping my children on the straight and narrow path that leads to heaven, the only path that leads to heaven. And if you're thinking either of those thoughts, and, and I'm just as disappointed as you are that our church isn't filled with 110 or more people every Sunday, but, but we have to keep in mind what the Lord said, that in reality, the, the seed is sown on four different types of soil. And... The devil is working very hard, very actively to, to steal that seed, that gospel seed from people's hearts. He does it with the worries of this world. He does it through the, the immorality, the sinfulness of this world. He does it in many different ways. If you read the parable of the seeds, we have to be realistic about what is going to happen when we proclaim the gospel. The surprising thing is not that there are some people who didn't come back here after Easter. The surprising thing is not that some of our children have, have wandered away from the faith. You know what's truly surprising? That you're still here. That you would come back to listen to the gospel. That is the miracle. That is the surprising thing. That is something that I give thanks for each and every day. Or maybe you're wondering, Life is short, and then you die. And that, that little portion in between your birth and your death is not an easy time either. What's the point of it all? Why doesn't Jesus make life in this world more pleasant, more enjoyable, or at least not quite so bad? And Paul reminds us to keep the proper perspective. No one is going to deny that life is short and hard, and then you die. That is the reality. But that's why we're here, isn't it? As Paul reminds us, he says, yes, 
Our momentary light trouble produces for us an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond any comparison. We are not focusing on what is seen, but on what is not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Now, those are just a few examples of the promises, the actual promises that our Lord makes to us. Far beyond anything we could ever imagine, right? What you see around us, what you see in your own life, that's, that's temporary. That's just a blip compared to the eternity of glory and happiness that we will experience all because Jesus died on that cross and then three days later rose from the dead. Charles Dickens was probably onto something, right? His, his novel, Great Expectations, is timeless because people in every society throughout all of human history have experienced exactly that. You have high expectations and, and they're never quite met. The problem if we have been depressed or sad or despairing since Easter is not with Jesus. Jesus came and did exactly what he promised he was going to do. He said, I was going to suffer and die for your sins and I was going to rise again. The problem is not with him, the problem is with us if we expect him to live up to his expecta our expectations rather than to do what he promised. But the solution is, is very simple. Right? Didn't the disciples figure that out right at the very end? Where did their comfort come from? It wasn't from seeing Jesus because Jesus disappeared right after he revealed himself. Their comfort came from the burning in their hearts when Jesus opened up the scriptures to them. So if you do find yourself hopeless or despairing in these days after Easter, realize what the solution is. Even if you can't see Jesus working in your life or in the world, you can read about the, the great promises that he makes to you, promises that he will never break. All because Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen.